0: Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I'm Steve, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are wrapping up our series on the life of David today. And we've called it On the Run uh, because David spent much of his life on the run. He was running for his life. He was uh, running away from his enemies. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But before we do, I wanna give you just two warnings for today. Uh, One, David's story is not a pretty story. It's not always a happy story, and especially at the end of his life. There's redemption at the end, no doubt. It will be encouraging for you, I hope but it's not a happy story. So if you came expecting to laugh and have fun and be happy all the time, uh, come back next week. It'll be great. Uh, The other thing is I want you to know that David's story um, especially at the end of his life, has some a little more adult elements, and so if you've got kids in the room, uh, our Gen Kids Ministry is open. It might be a great day to try that out for them. But as I said, we're spending we've called this series "On the Run" because David spent a large part of his life on the run from his enemies. But we also said, week one, that David was a man who uh, was a man after God's own heart. And so maybe that's hard to square up in your mind. Like, how do you really make that jive that David was a man after God's own heart, but yet he spent a long, long, big part of his life on the run? That doesn't really make sense. Well, as we bring the series to a close today, we're gonna be, I'm gonna remind you of something that you probably don't need to be reminded of. I'm gonna remind you of the fact that life doesn't always go as we plan. You probably know that. And if I just said that, came out and said, hey, you know, life doesn't always go as we plan. You might say, amen, brother, I hear you. Preach to, you're preaching to me. But many of us know that life d- doesn't always go as planned. Isn't it true? It's true. Life rarely goes as anticipated. It's not that there's anything wrong with plans and dreams. I'm a planner. I love to plan. I love to have a plan. I love to make a plan. I'll sit down in front of my computer and make a plan. And I like to plan out milestones. And I like to plan out dates. And I like to plan out things that are gonna happen. But you know, life doesn't always go as planned. And it's okay to dream. It's good to dream. It's good to have big dreams, God-sized dreams. But life happens, right? We don't always control everything. And sometimes life doesn't turn out like we hoped it would or like we planned. And sometimes life doesn't happen like we planned because of things that other people do. Like other people have a tendency to throw monkey wrenches into our works, right? That can happen. Some of you have had that happen. Something that somebody did to you or um, did to someone you know, and that has really messed up your plan for your life. And sometimes, this one's a little less comfortable, sometimes life doesn't turn out as we plan because of things that we do, because of mistakes that we make, because of sin that we have in our life. And that's what we're going to see in the life of David today. And so what that means for you at the end of the day is that life is full of surprises, And for you, they might be happy surprises and they may not be happy surprises. And for you, that might mean that you don't get to live happily ever after together. It might mean that you never get the chance to buy a high chair. It might mean that your rebellious son or daughter may never come home. That you might not get into the school of your dreams or you might not get the job of your dreams. That money might always be a problem for you or that your health may never get better. And sometimes the hardest part of this—the hardest part of life—throwing you curveballs isn't the curveball itself. It's like I could deal with the curveball, but the hardest part is what it does to our faith, isn't it? That we start to wonder, we start to question, we kind of fall into this trap of thinking that God owes me. Like, I, like especially if you're a Christian, I've surrendered my life to Him. You know, I come to church every Sunday. I, I serve. I, I follow the rules. Heck, I even tithe. And God, why aren't you? being faithful to me in my life? Aren't I entitled to a life of happiness? Aren't I entitled to a life free of pain? I mean, doesn't God say he'll never give us more than we can handle? Well, I think what we'll see today is that when we think that way, when we ask those kinds of questions, we're not even asking the right question. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at David's life and we're gonna see a question that David answers for us at the end of his life. And the question that we uh, need to answer is this, how do we respond? When when life doesn't go the way we plan, when our plans and dreams are thrashed, even by either by what somebody else does or by something we do, how are we supposed to respond to that? And we're going to see at the end of David's life, him give a response that is so cool and so encouraging that I think we can take it and we can all use it this week in our lives. So normally here, what I do is I tell you to open your Bibles to such and such a chapter and such and such a page, but um, we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner here, so... We are in week four of this four-week David series and he only became king last week. <laughs> and so we've got the last mm, 30 years or so of David's life to cover in this series. So buckle up, um, it's gonna be a bumpy ride, but I'm gonna help you. We're gonna put this timeline on the side screens and you'll be able to follow along with us, okay? So Second Samuel is where we're gonna be and you can follow that progression. Uh, David was anointed as king as a young man, a young boy probably, a teen or a preteen. We said week one. Uh, God sent the prophet Samuel to him. You remember that uh, he said, "You go and see a man named Jesse, and I'm I'm going to point out one of his sons." And you remember that Jesse paraded his seven sons in front of Samuel, and Samuel said, "Nope, none of these are them." And then, well, oh yeah, I forgot. I got that one other son out in the field. He's the shepherd. He's taking care of the sheep. Well, that was David. And David was a young boy then, probably a teenager, maybe even a preteen, might've been as young as 12 years old. He was anointed uh, king. And then he defeated Goliath, probably still as a teenager. And David should have been set for life. Here's the the boy that they say, he's gonna be the king. He defeats Israel's greatest enemy and the Philistines. He did something that the king was unwilling to do. And you would think David's set for life, right? I mean, God has made these promises to David, some specific promises to David, and we could just assume that David had made plans for his life based on these promises, but because of something that someone else does, thanks to an insanely jealous King Saul, David learned quickly that life doesn't always go as planned. And so David finds himself as a fugitive running for his life in the wilderness. And there are so many lessons to learn from David in these early years of life. We've talked about some of those, how he's running from the enemy. There are so many great examples of, of faith and of crying out to God, even when times are difficult. But David made plenty of selfish choices too. And we can learn from the selfish choices as well. And those choices were not without consequences. And we get to see those in 2 Samuel as we follow the story. And then last week we saw how David finally became king about the age of 30 years old. Anybody else, remember anybody else that came on the scene about 30 years old later in the Bible? Jesus, right? We'll talk about that too. Uh, uh, and the Bible says that David was a good king. In fact, as you read through the Chronicles of the Kings, what you see is every king who was a good king, they would say he walked in the footsteps of his father, David. What a great legacy to leave, right? That I'm a good king, and any good king is gonna be compared to me. He was a good king. Uh, But again, while there are plenty of positive and God-honoring things David does as king, well, we see him make some mistakes too, some poor choices, And, and the lessons that we can learn From those mistakes, that's what we're gonna talk about today are things that can serve us as life lessons as well. So here's where we'll start today. 20 plus years after becoming king, David's in his 50s. David sent his men off to war while he stayed back at home. And we don't know why David stayed back at home, but what we do know is it was time to go to war. David sent all of his men off and David stayed back in the palace. And so while all his soldiers have gone away, David is up on the roof one day and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And she's beautiful. And you probably know this story. I would guess it's the second most famous David story after Goliath. So if you know anything about the Bible or if you've been around church at all, you probably know this story. Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was one of David's great soldiers. We see his name mentioned among the 30 mighty men. How'd you like to be one of the 30 mighty men that are listed in scripture for all of eternity? They're there. And Uriah was one of those men. And Uriah, where's Uriah? He's off to war, right? He's where David should be. Uriah's off to war, Bathsheba bathed. David sees this and he tells his men to go get Bathsheba. And so they do. And Bathsheba comes back to the palace. And one of the problems with having a king, and I honestly believe this is one of the reasons that God didn't want Israel to have a king because one of the problems with having a king is you can't say no to the king. And so Bathsheba and David spend the night together and Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David has a problem. But he's a shrewd man, and so he conjures up a plan to fix it. He orders Uriah to come home from the battle. And David figures if Uriah will just go sleep with his wife, then problem solved. Nobody will know. Their little secret is all covered up, or his little secret is all covered up. So Uriah comes home, and David says, "Uh, uh, how are things in the battle? Go sleep with your wife. And he finds out Uriah slept on the steps to the palace. He wouldn't go home. And so David keeps him another day and he even gets him drunk. And he says, now go be with your wife. And Uriah again, sleeps outside the palace. See, the irony in this story is Uriah didn't think it was right that while his men were out for battle, that he should have a night at home. And so he slept on the palace steps. Uriah has so much more integrity than the king has in this moment. Right? David, who should be at war fighting with his men is back at home sleeping with Uriah's wife and Uriah won't even go home and sleep with his wife because he's got too much integrity to do that. And so because this presents another problem for David and this is a problem he hasn't covered up yet, um, David is willing to do the unthinkable. He, he's willing to do the stupid really. And so he sends Uriah back out to the battlefield and he writes a note. In 2 Samuel eleven fifteen 15 says, in it he wrote, put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David has the confidence in Uriah to give write his death warrant and hand it to Uriah to take back out to the battlefield. He knows that Uriah has such a man of integrity that he won't even read it. The irony of this king who's leading all of Israel. And so Uriah takes this out to the battlefield. It's his death sentence, and he's murdered on the battlefield. So Bathsheba's a widow now. David takes her as his wife. At first it looks like everything's covered up. Everything's good. David's gonna look like a hero. He's gonna raise another man's son, but his secret wouldn't last for long. Did you know secrets never last for long? The Bible tells us in Luke eight that everything done in darkness will eventually come to light. And so that's what happens to David. And one day, one of David's dear friends, the prophet Nathan comes to him and, and he makes an appointment with him. And then he comes into his palace and he tells him this story, this great story. And David, the king gets so angry at a man of that story. And he says, that man is in the wrong. That man deserves to die. And Nathan goes, uh, King, you are that man. You are the man that deserves to die. And David is broken. He realizes his sin and he starts to cry. And he says, uh, I can't believe it. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, you have sinned against the Lord. And because you're the leader, you're gonna be accountable to the entire kingdom. And for that reason, I'm going to give you, God says, a consequence that's going to affect the entire kingdom. See, every sin comes with its own prepackaged consequence. You know that? Like, it's kind of like if you go to Chick-fil-A and you get a salad and it comes with that little thing of roasted red peppers that's so nasty and nobody wants that, right? And so you get the salad, you eat the salad, but you throw the red peppers away. Or if you're like me, you put them in the pantry and then you get a whole basket of roasted red peppers and eventually you throw the whole basket of roasted red peppers away, right? Like, (laughs) Nobody wants that garbage, but it comes with the thing you want. That's how, sin, that's how sin is. Sin is the thing that we want, the thing that we can glory in, the thing that we get pleasure from comes with a consequence that's painful that nobody wants, but we don't get to choose whether it comes with it or not. And so David has this consequence that's going to affect the whole nation that comes with it. So in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. What a reminder though, that even though David was king and he knew he was king and he sometimes abused his power as king, he never confused himself with the king of kings. Like he's acknowledging, I'm at fault, I'm surrendering myself to God, I've sinned against the Lord. He said, what a powerful statement. By the way, that's a really powerful statement. It's powerful in David's story, it's powerful in mine and your story, you know that? If we can just bring ourselves to say, I have sinned against the Lord so much so many of our problems could be solved if we were just willing to look inward and admit that we have sinned against the Lord, that this, some of this might be my fault. And David sees that in himself. And so Nathan replies, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But God says, because you were responsible for this whole nation, this consequence is going to affect the whole nation. It's gonna affect everybody. There's gonna be consequences for your selfish choices. And then we get to the part of David's story where we start to see those consequences unfold. So 10 years pass. Relative peace. And then one day, something happens that turns David's world upside down. See, he, his oldest son was a man named Amnon. Uh, Amnon was David's oldest son. He was in line to be in power uh, for the king, should have been. Amnon falls in love with his half-sister, uh, a woman named Tamar. Tamar is David's daughter by another mom, another woman. And Amnon loves her, he's attracted to her, but because he can't have her, he decides to rape her. And so he rapes Tamar. And this next verse is just so intense. 2 Samuel 13, 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. She is wrecked. Like she is ruined. I mean, in this culture, she was damaged goods. She knows that no one will ever marry her, that, that she has no future. And So what does David do when he finds out that Amnon has raped her? he just lets it go. He doesn't do anything. And he probably thinks, how could I? Like, how, Who am I to tell other people how to live their lives, right? Who am I when I've got this sin in my background? Who am I to tell somebody how to manage their private affairs? So he doesn't do anything about it. But unfortunately, the chaos doesn't end there because David has another son, a son by the name of Absalom. Absalom is Tamar's brother by the same two parents. And Absalom has compassion for his sister. And he um, is enraged, by what his half brother Amnon did to her. He's furious with him, but he's also clever and he's also patient. And so instead of just jumping right out and acting, he lets a couple of years go by to let the dust settle, let people forget about kind of what happened. And then one day he decides he's gonna exact his revenge on Amnon. So he invites his family to a party um, at his place. They all come over, all the brothers come over. And uh, short, long story short, Amnon has forgotten kind of what he did to Tamar, but Absalom hasn't forgotten. And so he gets Amnon drunk and then he kills him. He murders his half-brother Amnon. And because Absalom knew that his father David wouldn't be pleased, he ran away. He, he ran from David. Uh, to a, he ran actually to a place that we now know as Syria. So he got out of Israel completely. So how did David react? Well, he was upset, but you know what he did? Nothing, nothing. He just let it go. And so a few years pass and David couldn't stand not seeing Absalom anymore. So David sent word and invited Absalom to come back to the kingdom. He invited him back to Jerusalem and Absalom agreed. He, he moves his, his family, he moves back to Jerusalem, but David won't talk to him. He gives him the silent treatment. Like he invited him back, but two years go by and there's no contact between David and Absalom. And even though they live around the corner from one another and Absalom's anger and resentment towards his father starts to grow and it just continues to increase to the point where it's out of control. And eventually David makes a move to try to ease tensions. He sends his uh, forgiveness to Absalom, um, but it was too late. Absalom was so bitter and so hurt, he decides to overthrow his own father and take over the throne. While he was certainly wicked, he wasn't dumb. And so Absalom devises this plan whereby he's gonna win people over slowly. And so what he does is he sets up shop at the city gates people would come back to Jerusalem to have their disputes settled. And when they get there, they see the king's son, Absalom sitting at the gates and they can come to him and Absalom decides I'm gonna help people settle the disputes because if you help people solve a problem, you start to win their trust, right? And so Absalom does this for four years. He sits at the city gates and he helps people uh, solve their problems and, and he starts to win people over. He starts to win people to a side and eventually after four years, he's got enough that he's got a big army got an army of people willing to fight. And it's not clear how it actually happens, but one day Absalom proclaims himself to be the new king. He says, David's not in control anymore. I'm in charge, even while David's still sitting on the throne. Now think about this. You add all that time up, it's been 16 years since David's sin with Bathsheba, 16 years later, and his world is a wreck. It's a wreck. Civil war has come to Israel. He's got one son dead. He's got one son who's trying to overthrow him. He's got a daughter whose life is ruined. But David was smart enough to see how much influence Absalom had in the community now. And so when David's servant came to tell him that Absalom was coming for him, um, David replied with this, 2 Samuel 15, 14. He says, come, we must flee the city or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave here immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us. He will put this entire city to the sword. See, David knew his life was at stake and that peace in Israel was at stake. And so guess what? David's on the run again. Now at 60 years old, you know, he ran from Saul in his 20s. Now he's 60 years old and he's on the run from his son. But 60 then isn't like 60 now. People at 60 now can do a lot of things. I see 60 year olds running marathons and competing in CrossFit and having babies But 60 years old back then, I mean, you were ancient. You were in the top like 1% of the oldest people. David is on his deathbed practically, just ready to go. And here he is, he's running for his life at 60 years old. And I promise you that somewhere along the way, as he's on the run from Absalom, he had to be thinking, this isn't how I planned it. Like this isn't how I thought it would go. Can you imagine David at 12, 13, 15 years old being anointed king? And being able to look at himself 45, 50 years in the future at 60 years old and saying, I've got a son that's dead. I've got a daughter who's been raped. I've got another son who's coming to kill me. I can't imagine that's how he planned it, right? You got to imagine with David, he was shocked that life hasn't gone exactly to his plan. And maybe that's where you are today. You come in this place and you're like David, you're heartbroken, you're hurt, you're disappointed, you're frustrated, maybe frustrated with God. And it's only natural. If you've been through some difficult times, maybe you're in something right now that's really, really hard for you. It's very natural to say, like, where's God? Why, why isn't he doing something? I mean, what's the point of even going on? Why even try? And I just want you to know if you're there or you've been there recently, I want you to know I've been there with you. Like, it's easy to get there. It's easy to get upset with God. I, I've been frustrated. I go through times in my life that have really challenged my faith and caused me to wonder, like, is this the calling on my life? Is this what God wants from me? I mean, if people are gonna act like that, why would I even be in ministry? Why would I even do this? God, if, if you're not gonna get me through this, why would I even serve you? It's easy to ask those kinds of questions. And for David, it's not the first time he's gone through something hard, right? He's had lots of good days, no doubt, but there's been lots of difficult times in his life where he had to question, he had to wonder, So many ups and downs, so much chaos, so many days on the run. But here's what happens when you spend enough time on this planet and you start to get some gray hair, you have some experiences, and if you continually seek God with all of your heart, remember the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart? You start to learn some things. You learn some things about life, you learn some lessons about God, and so while Absalom proclaimed himself to be the new king, fearing for his life, David and his most loyal officials flee the city of Jerusalem. And one of the men who was with David was a man named Zadok. Now Zadok was the high priest, which means he was, his job was to go to God on behalf of the people and to guard the temple and to guard the temple artifacts. And one of those artifacts was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Old Testament, it was believed that was where God lived. That was his residence. It, was, it represented the very presence of God on earth. Now for some people in Israel, the Ark of Covenant was like a good luck charm. It was like, we got to keep this thing around because we have good luck wherever it goes. But for David, it was much more than that. For David, he knew it represented God's house. It was where God lived. It was, you couldn't be closer to the presence of God than if you were by the Ark of the Covenant. And so, um, in 2 Samuel 15, 25, we see this. Look at what happened. The king said to Zadok, take the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. I don't want you to miss how significant this is. David and his men are running away from the city. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're running away, okay? They're fleeing Absalom. Absalom and his troops are on their way into the city. And David says to Zadok, the high priest, hey, take the Ark of the Covenant back. We're not taking that with us. And you gotta think, this has gotta be a pretty unpopular decision for David. Uh, His people want their good luck charm, right? They want their lucky rabbit's foot, their lucky coin, their lucky underwear or whatever they wear, And they want the Ark of the Covenant because all that stuff is gonna keep them safe. But for David, he knew what this represented. And he knew that even though they hadn't done anything wrong, they weren't in the wrong, Absalom was in the wrong, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And listen to what David said to Zadok, his explanation for why he didn't wanna take the Ark with him, why he wanted the Ark back in the city. He said, if, take it back into the city, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it let me see his dwelling place again but he says if i am not pleased with you then i'm ready let him do to me whatever seems good to him let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the dwelling place of God. And if you know anything about David, what was the one thing David wanted most? The one thing that David wanted most. We see it in Psalm 27. He writes this, one thing I ask from the Lord, only this do I seek that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Or your translation may say to seek him in his dwelling place. The one thing David wanted was to be with the Lord and to be in his dwelling place. And here he is sending the dwelling place of the Lord away. He's sending it back away from his people. Why? Because David says, let him decide. Let God decide. In other words, not what I want, but what he wants. What I want, David says, even the thing that I want the most in life pales in comparison to what God wants. That was David's reasoning. It's so important, David says, not what I want, but what God wants, not my will, but his will. David was in the thick of it. I mean, his life was a mess. Nothing was going as planned, and yet he hasn't lost his faith in God. He hasn't, you never see David saying in this story, God, where are you? you know, he may be the king of Israel, but he realizes he's not God. And so in spite of the pain, in spite of the frustration and turmoil, he never lost his faith. He never lost his confidence in God. And he refused to try to manipulate God by taking the Ark of the Covenant with him. He wasn't willing to allow this Ark to be used as a a chess piece or as a means for getting what he wants. It was David's way of saying before God and others, my life is in his hands. His will is going to be done. It's not what I want, but what God wants. And so here's the rest of the story. David and his people flee the city. Absalom takes control without a fight. There's no soldiers there to fight. Then Absalom has a decision to make. If he really wants to be king, He's got to take his father out of the picture. He's going to have to kill him. So long story short, Absalom and his most trusted men end up in battle against David and David's most trusted men. And David's men are way too much for Absalom's army. They overwhelm him. Absalom was defeated soundly. And not only that, but against David's direct orders, his son Absalom was killed on the battlefield. And so what does David do? He's a mess. I mean, now he's lost two sons he mourned the death of his son to the very point that David's men were afraid to come in front of him and celebrate their victory. Like David's soldiers have just won this huge victory over their enemy and David won't even celebrate it. And some of the men thought he should be celebrating. Like his throne has been restored. His kingdom is back. But for David, the victory amounted to nothing because he had lost another son. And then he added to that, I think David felt the weight of his own sin and recognized that this was yet another consequence for the sin that his sin had contributed to the mess he was in. So David served another nine years as king and eventually died at the age of 70. And as I told you at the beginning of the service, his story is a messy one, isn't it? It's messy. It's messy. And the writers held very little back in telling this story, telling the details of David's life. I guess I'm somewhat relieved that a man who would be known as a man after God's own heart would have so much mess in his life that even with all of the mistakes that he could be known as a man who was after God's own heart. I I so much appreciate uh, author Chuck Swindoll when he writes, I'm grateful that the words of the Bible have been spoken and completed. I shudder at the thought of all the details of my life being exposed for too many to see. Even with all his mistakes and flaws, even in the ups and downs with all the running away and the chaos, David never gave up on God. And you know what? God never gave up on David. I think there are so many really important lessons about faith and our trust in God that can be found by examining David's life. But I think that's the, the most important. Maybe our greatest lesson from David is to re- learn how we respond when life doesn't go as planned. Because here's what David knew, even in all the ups and downs, through all the running, God was there with him. In fact, you probably see it in his most famous writing, probably David's most famous writing is, is from the Psalms, Psalm 23. And he writes this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. Can you imagine running for your life from your son and saying, God's leading me in the right path. This is the right path. You may not feel that in your heart, but can you imagine saying that? He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So just imagine when that relationship falls apart and you're not sure where to turn next, to say, the Lord is my shepherd though. I know that the Lord is my shepherd, that he's going to lead me. He's going to guide me. Imagine uh, when you don't get the thing that you want most in life saying, yeah, but he's my provider. I mean, he he prepares a table in front of my enemies, right? Imagine when you have health problems or money problems saying, yeah, though, even though I'm going to walk through the darkest valley, I know that he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. What did David learn? I might lose everything, but I will not lose my faith in God. In fact, we can just sum it up this way. I will not give up on God because he will not give up on me. Even in the presence of my enemies, he provides all I need. Even in the valley of death, I have nothing to fear. Not my will be done, David says, but his will. Sounds like somebody else we know from scripture, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like Jesus when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and his enemies are closing around all, all around him and he's facing certain death and he says, but not my will, but your will be done. In fact, we can see so many parallels between David's story and Jesus's story. When David fled for his life from Absalom, where did he go? Where did he run to? He ran to the Mount of Olives. You know where the garden of Gethsemane is? It's right at the base of the Mount of Olives. Where was Jesus arrested? Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives. People wept as David departed the city. As he ran from Jerusalem, people wept. As Jesus came into Jerusalem, people wept. As he carried his cross to Calvary, people wept. Both of these men were overlooked by their families. We know about David being the last brother considered to be king, but the Bible tells us that Jesus too was a stranger to his brothers. Both rose to prominence at 30 years old. Both spent a significant amount of time being pursued by their enemies. And even when David's sons rebelled against him, it broke his heart to see one of his children perish. We know that that's true with Jesus too. Jesus wishes that none of his children would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He he leaves the 99 to go find the one. But while David's story is peppered with sin, Jesus lived his whole life without sin and never sinned. While David was a shepherd, Jesus was the good shepherd. And David may have been a king, but Jesus is the king of kings. And he's no longer being pursued by his enemies, but he's in pursuit of you. He's pursuing you, and he went to the cross and gave up his life so that we could have life, so that we could have eternal life. And he defeated death and came back to life so that he could be our living hope. And here's the promise he is our shepherd. He is our comforter. He is our provision. He's the bridge that connects us to God. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is our living hope. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for that promise and that even in the story of David, which is so messy, and so messed up that we can see ourselves and our sin and that we can gain encouragement from the fact that you never let go of your children, that you never stop pursuing us, that you're willing to leave the 99 and go find the one. And you did it with David and you do it with us. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our living hope. Lord, we proclaim that even today as we wrap up our service today. We pray this in his name.